BMO's Sustainability Leaders podcast recently published an episode titled Responding to COVID-19 Through Sustainable Finance. We're replaying that episode here as it pertains to COVID-19. On this episode, host Michael Torrance moderates a roundtable discussion with BMO sustainability experts Manju Seal, David Sneed, and Jonathan Hackett to discuss the role that sustainable finance can play in our current environment. Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Hello, and welcome to Sustainability Leaders. My name is Michael Torrance. I'm Chief Sustainability Officer at BMO Financial Group. Today, we're going to have a special episode to talk about the COVID crisis and its implications for sustainability. I'll be speaking with a group of BMO sustainability experts to consider how the global challenges presented by the COVID pandemic will impact sustainability strategies into the future, and in particular, the world of sustainable finance and investing. I'll be joined by three of my colleagues, Jonathan Hackett, Managing Director and Head of Sustainable Finance at BMO. He's based in Toronto. Manju Seal, who is Head of Sustainable Finance Advisory Work at BMO. She's based in New York. And David Sneed, VP and Analyst with the Responsible Investment Team of BMO Global Asset Management in London. Before we get started, let's consider where we are and what we've seen already. The COVID pandemic has been unprecedented in terms of its scope and the rapid, severe effect it has had on personal well-being, community well-being, and on the real economy. We're living through very challenging and unsettling times with unprecedented speed and severity of its global impacts, including particularly for businesses, many of which are facing existential questions they've never had to consider before, and many are even struggling to stay afloat. With such severe social, economic, and financial impacts, those of us in the sustainability field are actively questioning and thinking about what sustainability and sustainable finance and investing means and should mean in this time of global crisis and what it will mean afterwards. Understandably, business continuity and immediate approaches needed to protect employees, stay in business and keep customers safe and secure are rightly the focal point of business strategies right now. These questions have to be answered with great urgency. It's easy to think that sustainability strategy on topics like climate change, for example, will take a backseat in these circumstances. On the other hand, sustainability is fundamentally about demonstrating the ability of business and society to endure over time, and beyond that, to positively impact environmental and social outcomes. It's really about resilience and impact at its core. It's about understanding a company's social purpose, namely why and how the business makes society better and therefore should maintain the support of the society in which it operates. It's also about maximizing positive impacts and mitigating negative ones in concert with stakeholders like employees, communities, and civil society to achieve global goals that no one jurisdiction can achieve on its own. In the COVID pandemic, we see sustainability principles in action perhaps more than ever. There are many examples of positive social impact from companies taking exceptional approaches to protecting the health and safety of workers, enacting ethical pricing strategies, providing relief to hard-hit consumers and business partners, supporting communities with products and services, 
preserving supply chains and providing critical infrastructure needed to assist healthcare and government programs to achieve their goals. Leaders in the banking industry, for example, including our own bank, BMO, have stepped up in a number of ways, supporting the delivery of government support programs, launching comprehensive relief programs for small business and individuals, allowing mortgage payment deferrals, and also taking extraordinary steps to protect workers while remaining operational to provide essential services to communities. The COVID crisis, from a sustainability perspective, is really then an opportunity to put social purpose to the test. And there will also be reputational implications for this response effort. Stakeholders are watching how businesses respond and how they demonstrate their positive social impact and do their share and support the COVID response efforts. Memories are likely to be long about how well or not well this is done. So where are we headed and what role in particular will sustainable finance and investment play both during and after the COVID pandemic? Pre-pandemic, sustainable finance and investment had been on an incredible growth phase, developing new and innovative ways to provide capital for sustainable development goal-aligned initiatives and investment to address pressing sustainability challenges like climate change. The question becomes, has COVID interrupted this trend or are we on the verge of a surge in this type of activity targeted at social and environmental challenges, both COVID-related and beyond? These questions will be the focus of today's podcast. So let's now turn to our expert panel to get their take on this new world we're living in and the implications for sustainability and sustainable finance and investment. Jonathan, I'd like to start with you. First of all, can you describe for the audience what your work at BMO entails? Sure. So my role is really around mobilizing the bank towards sustainable finance and finding ways that we can build connections across the different parts of the bank that have already been working in this area. So that really takes on one, working with the different businesses to help them develop and deliver products that integrate sustainability. Two, working directly with our clients on how they can pursue sustainability opportunities and how they can understand the impact of ES and G on how investors view them in their businesses. And then the third part really is the overseeing our impact investment fund. That's a $250 million venture fund that the bank created to identify and help to scale up solutions to our clients' sustainability challenges. Lastly, there's work that we do around uh, cross-functional efforts to focus on efforts in tree planting, sustainable and affordable housing, and where the bank can really catalyze those industries. So Jonathan, some people believe that ESG and sustainability strategies are kind of luxuries, if you will, that companies and investors should be setting aside during a crisis like this. But others are pointing out that the real focus actually with respect to COVID response strategies by businesses and governments is around social impact. And there's an opportunity for companies to focus on social impact in the role in supporting the COVID response. From your vantage point, what do you think the market has in store for sustainable finance? Do you think COVID will be a setback or does it actually present new opportunities? I think it's going to be a learning opportunity for a lot of people to see how sustainability and ESG really plays out not just in you know, a run rate environment, but in times of stress. As people think about treatment of employees, normally that's about pay packages, that's about working environment, that's about health and safety. In an environment like this, it really translates into the trust that you've built with those employees. If you need people to show up to work because they're essential to your operations and you're providing an essential service, how you've treated them in the past is really going to play into that. And we're going to see companies really reaping the rewards or the penalties of their prior investments in ESG factors. 
I think on the other hand, in terms of people's investments, there's really going to be a question around the near-term versus long-term nature of ESG and where we see people potentially putting aside their focus on ESG to pursue near-term value. And I don't think that's necessarily a major setback for ESG. It's always been a longer-term perspective. And trying to say, how am I going to be rewarded on a very short-term basis is very difficult. But I think we're going to see on the short-term people potentially moving out of ESG-related investments and into near-term just capitalizing on opportunities where the risk-return payoff is greater given the volatility in the market. The COVID pandemic response has been likened to economic mobilization that happened during the world wars. And there are businesses talking about doing things that are you know, really unprecedented, like retooling their business to meet new and COVID-focused needs from masks to gowns to ventilators. Do you see there being a potential role for sustainable finance to play to make this type of response possible? Yeah, I, I really do. I think this is one of those areas that, you know, as we talk about sustainable finance, sometimes it can feel like it's all about labeled products or, you know, things that have a certain stamp of approval. But this is where I would say it really falls squarely into a long tradition within banking of supporting people doing extraordinary things and, and providing the finances to really help them achieve those goals. And, and that's where when we look to our clients in those situations, people that are making those investments to retool their operations, to pursue near-term needs that society has. We're worrying less about, is that a social loan? Could they do a social bond and more? Just how do we bring those resources to them? In the end, I think it'll be something where we will have done a lot of sustainable financing, but that's really where I think the connection to the bank's purpose comes in, where everybody's pursuing that under a label at BMO of boldly growing the good in business and life. And whether or not it's captured in a final number or in our tracking in sustainable finance is going to be a different question that really is put to the side as we focus on just what can we do for society in the near term. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Let's turn to you, Manju. Can you describe your role at BMO and the work that you do in the area of sustainable finance? Sure, Michael. So my role today in capital markets is primarily collaborating with our bankers internally and our clients externally. And this means applying our bank's one bank approach to its corporate and institutional clients and uh, bringing relevant uh, resources together for helping them incorporate environmental, social, and governance criteria into their investment considerations. And I especially engage with clients in identifying solutions around green or social bond underwriting and other sustainable finance products and help them grasp uh, what the issuance mechanics will look like for them. And beyond that, I also lead our thought leadership for uh, sustainable finance and uh, being on BMO's Sustainability Council, as well as uh, co-hosting our BMO Sustainability Leaders podcast series has also been great in the past year. Well, with your work with clients and just monitoring the activities of the market, what can you tell us about the impact that the COVID-19 outbreak has had on the sustainable finance market, in particular with sustainable debt issuance? As I mentioned, there's been huge growth over the last several years, but has this been put on pause? And, and also, are you seeing any new innovations that have come out of this crisis that are noteworthy? So I think it's worth taking a quick stock of what happened in sustainable finance world last year. A new record was set in 2019 where sustainable debt globally 
hit a record issuance, and it was a total of about $465 billion, which was 80% higher than 2018. Sustainable debt issuance cumulatively by the end of 2019 hit about $1.2 trillion, which obviously then fueled the insatiable the growth or the demand, as you might want to call it, of sustainable investments. So there is a consensus for the most part that there is a greater demand than supply today. And the products that fueled this push were primarily green bonds, sustainability bonds, social bonds, green loans, transition bonds, there were a few of them, sustainability-linked loans, and then finally, sustainability-linked bond. And then within this product suite, if you will, the green bonds and sustainability-linked loans have been most talked about since, especially last year, I would say, and they've come to market in great numbers. And if you were to look at the numbers real quick, green bonds, there was roughly $270 billion in issuance. Sustainability-linked loans, there was about $122 billion in issuance worldwide. Sustainability bonds were roughly $46 billion. And then against this backdrop, when you look at social bonds, there was only a trickle, about roughly $16 billion in issuance last year. So what I would say is that overall, there was a great rise and demand for sustainable finance products, but social bonds really didn't get a lot of notice or attention, if you will. Now, if you think about uh, this year, 2020, in the first quarter itself, we have seen that there has been roughly already... 13 billion in issuance of social bonds, which is uh, remarkable compared to what happened last year. And when you look at March 2020, when the pandemic uh, really uh, became worldwide with 200 countries being affected, what we saw was that social bonds became the fastest growing sustainable finance product. Actually, if you look at as of early April, there has been 16 billion issued for pandemic related sustainable bonds of which there were about 12 deals. And of these, about 10 of the 12 deals came primarily from development banks. And there was one corporate issuer and there was one sovereign issuer. And I think it's worth looking at some of these issuances that have come to the market. So when you when you look at this variety of uh, pandemic-related bonds that have hit the market, African Development Bank is the most talked about in the recent weeks where they issued a $3 billion three-year fight COVID-19 social bond. Nordic Investment Bank came through and issued a billion-dollar response bond. And uh, they specifically talked about providing financial support to alleviate frictions to supply chains. Inter-American Development Bank came with a five-year fixed-rate $2 billion sustainable development bond. Council of Europe Development Bank's seven-year euro one billion COVID social bond was actually called a social inclusion bond. And here they were going to help their member countries mitigate its effects. Pfizer came with a 10-year 1.25 billion sustainability bond. And for this particular bond, it's worth mentioning that they talked about part of the bond proceeds will be used towards capital investments in manufacturing and development capacity to ensure medicines and vaccines needed. And finally, but not last, EIB issued $3 billion krona sustainability awareness bond. And this particular bond really caught my attention because the use of proceeds include very clearly for the pandemic, things that you would expect, medical and non-medical equipment, works to convert facilities into emergency and ICU units, reconfiguration of healthcare services, as well as 
staff costs, vehicles and transport equipment and so on. So definitely we would say that the issuers out there, especially uh, sovereign issuers and uh, development banks are full on in shifting gears and making use of opportunities here of issuing pandemic-related sustainable bonds. Thanks for that overview, Manju. I think if there's one clear impact that COVID is having on the market, it's uncertainty. And as you and I know, because we worked on BMO's own sustainable bond issuance, developing the sustainable bonds program here, there's a lot of work that has to go into a, a labeled type of bond like that. And so considering all of this uncertainty and revised priorities, what effect do you think that that will have on future issuances, considering that work is going to have to be done now, perhaps for issuances that could take place months from now? Will there be a a bit of a a lag or a long-term impact of this crisis on the sustainable debt issuance market? So first of all, Michael, yes, the work that goes into issuing any kind of sustainable bond for an issuer is something that is to be taken seriously and needs both time and labor. But having said that, I think it's good to know that, first of all, ICMA or International Capital Market Association has come out and said that in the face of the pandemic, that issuers need to be transparent, but they don't need to change their existing framework if they've already issued social or sustainability bond. So somebody like our bank, BMO, we have our sustainable financing framework already in place. And so if there was an issuance to be considered, one could uh, fairly retool the uh, framework quickly to issue a pandemic-related bond. And the second point I would like to make around this, and which I think is the most important here, the ICMA has also come out and made uh, this additional point that the issuer should make transparent the positive social outcomes that a COVID-19 bond is targeting. So in the absence of a broader social bond framework, issuers can opt to specify how they will comply with the four core components of the social bond principles in the offering document for a COVID-19-focused social bond. So what this means is that if you are hard-pressed to come out with a COVID-19 specific social bond framework, there is a way around it, which I think is terrific if given the high urgency or given the the great need for these sorts of issuances to come to market. Now, to your question, whether we expect the market to take a pause here, the green bond issuances obviously has uh, come down a bit in the first quarter we are seeing. And uh, that should be no surprise as uh, I think issuers are shifting gears as we talked about earlier. But whether whether we expect to see a, a dip in the sustainable finance market, I think not. It will be quite the contrary. I think this is going to be a time for financing the repurposing of factories or you know the businesses that need financing uh, through the peak of the virus based on the national or the city lockdowns we are seeing those would also need financing and even things like vaccine you know uh, as they are being developed and production needs ramping so there are all sorts of reasons to continue to reach out and uh, utilize the capital markets to issue uh, social bonds and sustainability bonds especially 
So I don't expect that as the 200 countries you know, are uh, struggling to get through this crisis with a million and a half uh, cases worldwide and huge number of deaths, that there's going to be any kind of uh, letdown or reduction in the sustainable finance market. All right. Thanks, Manju. So David, how about um, your views from the responsible investment perspective? First of all, can you tell us about the work that you do with BMO Global Asset Management and the responsible investment team? Thanks, Michael. As said, I'm in the responsible investment team at BMO Global Asset Management. And our role as a team is really twofold. Firstly, we research ESG topics and work within the investment team to make sure that we can integrate these ESG risks and opportunities into their investment process. And that's all part of a bigger picture of ensuring that we can provide the best risk-adjusted returns for our clients. And ESG, it's worth just taking a minute just to kind of break down the lingo a little bit. And it, it sounds quite technical or high level, but actually these are real things that really affect our lives. And if anything, things that are affecting us even more right now. So environment, that would include things like climate change, or for example, it would include how a company is managing its water supply, uh, particularly if there's scarcity there. Uh, the S stands for social. Uh, that looks at, for example, how companies are treating their employees or larger societal issues such as data privacy or something like that. And the G that stands for governance. So that's all about really how companies are structured in a way that, that makes them accountable to stakeholders and being sure that their interests are aligned with stakeholders. And in addition to doing that research, another big part of what we do as a team is really all around this idea of engagement. It's that we don't just invest and then that's it. We just wait for the dividend and then we buy and sell as we please. But actually, when we invest, we're looking to being regular contact and work alongside the companies in which we've decided to give capital. And that is mainly to influence and improve their ESG performance, which we think in turn makes them better investments. And so that can be from either seeing where we see innovation and best practice and being sure that, that laggards are also adopting that, but also a lot of the time it involves being very reactive too. And as you can imagine, that's a big part of what we're doing right now. That's great. And in terms of responsible investment products and services, I know that a lot of the work that BMO Global Asset Management does is around developing ESG-focused funds. And, and there's a really growing market for those types of funds, and that has been growing for a number of years. How have you seen these ESG funds, how have they been faring uh, in these totally unprecedented times with such a substantial and sharp economic downturn that we've seen? Yeah, great question. So it's worth saying from the off that the ESG funds is still quite a broad church and that umbrella can involve still quite a wide variety of strategies. So some of those could be uh, purely exclusion based. So it could make a decision whereby it may invest in a particular market, but actually there may be certain sectors or certain businesses that they wanted to be avoid for ethical reasons. You know, we used to very much call these the sin stocks of the world, um, but actually it's getting broader than that. It's, it's areas where people don't think that a particular sector does positively contribute to society and therefore it's, it's wanted to be avoided. We also see those that are somewhat more agnostic about kind of how businesses, what actually businesses do, and actually they want to tilt towards those businesses that have a better understanding and are doing better at managing ESG risks within their business. So they're more responsible in how they're run. They take greater consideration of stakeholders. Within a sector, they are really kind of the jewels of a good ESG performance and kind of irrespective of, of what line of work they're in. 
Overall, I'd say that we've actually seen ESG funds fare quite well during the downturn. I think I would mainly point this towards two general trends. The first is, as we would normally expect in a downturn, there has been a flight to quality as part of of where we're, we're currently at. And quality management, quality balance sheet management, quality in terms of treatment of stakeholders, we think all of that is correlated with good management of ESG issues. We generally find that where there is quality management and that's reflected in how they look after the ESG side of the business, that's also seen elsewhere too. I think the other part is the sectoral exposure has been uh, an advantage to certain funds that take that sort of approach. So avoiding those sectors that, for example, are the most exposed to the oil price has certainly done well. Um, Some other areas, such as on consumer discretionary with alcohol, for example, uh, which has been hit quite badly, again, avoiding that has has definitely been a tailwind. I think in addition to that, though, there's also those that are looking to invest in opportunities and solutions. So you'll generally find that ESG funds have a tilt towards healthcare and pharmaceuticals because of the benefit of the work that they do has on society. And so as you can imagine, uh, those have generally seen uh, an uptick at present, particularly those who are in the right place and, and are very much providing either the equipment or the medication or the research that is needed right now to uh, get us through this current crisis. So I think a combination of these things, we've generally seen those provide a bit of a tailwind when comparing relative to uh, the more conventional benchmarks. David, you've you've discussed your work around stewardship alongside responsible investing or as part of that, as well as your engagement with companies. How has COVID-19 affected that work engaging with companies to promote better ESG practices? Yeah, no, that's 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 a very good point. And I'd say in 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 the first instance, as you can imagine it, it's it's changed our priorities somewhat. So our engagement program is both proactive and reactive. There are those things that we think are longer term. And those things that we purposely go out to companies, to sectors, to different markets, really looking to engage, stimulate conversation and sometimes to enact change. There are those other cases where we may see something in our portfolio or an incident happening, even if it's systemically, that we actually need to respond to and be sure that the companies in which we invest in, in how they're responding themselves. And, you know, fully accepting it's it's a really testing time for companies right now. And particularly for those longer term conversations, I would say we're seeing a lot of those being paused. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And we wouldn't necessarily say that was a bad decision, partly because a lot of these things that we do talk to companies about, we see engagement as a multi-year long-term process. Very rarely is it something where you can go from raising an issue and winning trust with the company to suddenly having something changed in a short amount of time. And so, as you can imagine, we have a lot of very much a lot of in-flight engagement right now. But at the same time, we appreciate that companies have more to do and, and they either be firefighting or actually there's more things demanding of their time. So at the very least, we want to be considerate and say, let's pause this. I think even if everyone's in agreement, it's still a priority. We hope that it's something that can be picked up when the time is right and that we're not retracting in any way, but actually it's paused and that we can continue kind of the progressing, the kind of the long-term change. And I think from a policy perspective, we've seen this too, as, as you're probably aware, we have COP26, which was due to take place later this year, which is really going to be the biggest milestone since the Paris Agreement was originally signed. And the decision to delay that is one that's generally been well received, accepting that this is not something you want to rush. The consequences of this meeting could last four decades. And so to rush it would be a mistake. I think the other thing I would say as well is it's really a good time right now to test the metal of companies on how much they really prioritize stakeholders. 
So, for example, if we've had a company telling us for for many years, actually, you know, they're very much value employees and and they very much see them as a priority and and particularly the benefits and the welfare of their employees. Well, actually, how are they treating them at present? Is the rhetoric and is what they say they feel um, being reflected in their practice right now when actually that's really, really being tested? You know, how are they demonstrating that and, and have they shown that they're taking it seriously um, given the current crisis that we're in? Thanks, David. Let's now turn to a, a roundtable and a, a kind of a rapid fire question and answer and throw it open to the group. My, my first question is just about the post-COVID world. No doubt the world is going to be rebuilding economically and in other ways. And there's been some discussions about what that rebuild could look like and whether it actually could present opportunities to achieve other sustainability goals. So for example, if there's infrastructure stimulus that's being planned, should it be oriented towards resilience and renewable outcomes with respect to climate change? Is there a role, does anyone think, for sustainable finance to be playing in shaping this post-COVID world? Or will sustainable finance as an instrument or a vehicle be redundant in light of government responses more broadly? Maybe I'll throw it to Jonathan to start off the discussion. Yeah, this is an area where we've actually been engaging with a few stakeholders on this concept of a green stimulus. And really the, the goal is, can we create, when we're making those large spends, a positive impact that skews where the country is going towards our, our eventual uh, climate-related goals? And I do think this is a valid opportunity. It's something where if the government is going to make those investments, it should be doing so with a longer term strategy that is aligned to where it's trying to go. It's also one, though, where we don't want perfect to be the enemy of good. And so I do think there are going to be near term spends that may not be the exact focus of sustainable finance, and that if they are the right things to keep the economy afloat, that'll still drive a positive outcome. What about you, David? Do you think this is going to, for example, speed our transition to a lower carbon economy or will it be irrelevant in the end? Yeah, I think there's definitely an opportunity right now, I think more broadly to kind of have a moment to pause and think and, and almost reset in, in some different aspirations. And, and we're not we're not continuing as business as normal. I think I think there is some opportunity here to actually reflect on what it is we want post-COVID to look like and actually to see this as, as turning a corner, even though it's been forced upon us and not something of our choosing, I think was generally agreed last year and, and for the first part of this year, particularly on the climate change debate, that business as normal is not something that we can just continue to do. And some were arguing that that change needs to look more more recent than, than others. But I think we're all now in agreement, I think, and I think it's a healthy thing for everyone to suddenly accept that, that the world going forward from here is going to look different from, from that which we previously had. And I think in that context, that's actually very helpful on the climate change debate. I think climate change, similar to COVID-19, is something that has local implications, but at the same time, it has global influence. It's something that unites us all around the world in all the different countries in which we're in, both as contributors, but also um, potentially as as victims to the consequences of it. And so I think, again, in that context, I think it can build the right framework and the right mindset to really come together and constructively think, okay, 
COVID-19 was something that required a global response. It was something that required a coordinated response where different stakeholders and countries needed to put their own interests in the framework of, of a global setting. And I think that that is a perfect stage in which to, to take the, the climate debate forward and, and hopefully to, to promote further action. Manju, turning to you, how do you think globalization will be affected by this crisis in international trade? supply chains, for example, from a sustainability perspective? Will increased domestication lower sustainability risks? And, and what about some other issues beyond globalization, just in relation to global sustainability? I think there is going to be, as we are already seeing, disruptions of various kinds. There is an amplification of you know, social, economic, and, you know, to, to some extent, even uh, environmental problems like, you know, wastewater systems or sewage, you know, in certain areas, uh, depending on uh, how remote or low income the community is. So, you know, we are seeing already the concerns and the effects uh, whereby the, the world's most vulnerable are suffering. And, uh, you know, whether it doesn't matter if you're poor in a rich country or a poor country, the poor is going to, you know, be affected deeply. We talk about the migrant uh, laborers who are uh, being dislocated, and there are millions of migrant lo- laborers around the world, which is then going to affect our food security in the coming months. Because as we are seeing in the news now, there is concern that there may not be, you know, laborers to pick the harvest in the coming months. And so the supply chain in a regular environment or in a regular economy when everything seems to be running smoothly, is something that often is uh, drilled down and scrutinized. But there is a risk now that uh, there could be, for example, the dislocated workers being prone to exploitation further. So will that affect, uh, say, the labor rights or human rights? Possibly in some parts of the world, uh, for sure. The globalization, again, is, is great uh, in terms of reducing the cost of sourcing uh, certain goods and services. But if those services cannot be provided online or remotely, then it does make it uh, much harder. Take also education, for example. You know, we are, um, you know, privileged to be living, even though I, I live in New York, we are still privileged to be seeing that some of our communities are able to switch to remote or online learning. But there are, you know, millions of students who are going to be affected uh, worldwide that will not have access to learning now. And there is also the nutrition aspect for that. So, for example, there will be students who don't have access to meals, which uh, they go to schools for. So these are all sorts of, you know, disruption and then negative effects of the pandemic. And when we talk about rebuilding, you know, those are again some of the areas that we'll uh, have to look at and uh, see how we can uh, mobilize capital, mobilize labor and bring back things to normal. David, let's maybe dive a little deeper into that point that Manju made around human rights, for example. When it comes to you know this big push to try to get supply chains functioning again, Manju raised the point about migrant labor just to have food security. I mean, there's so many urgent priorities. Would the human rights elements of those business activities, are, are they taking a backseat in this push to achieve the, the goal of, of reopening and keeping open for business? And how are you seeing companies are continuing to monitor 
their businesses and supply chains or investors to think about issues like human rights? I mean, is it too much to ask in a time like this for that to remain a focus? And is this maybe an example where sustainability goals are going to be even temporarily subordinated to other priorities in, in these extreme circumstances? Yeah, I, th- I think we are seeing uh, live examples of that all the time. I think one I would just give off the top of my head is is we've seen Malaysia provide 60% of the world's supply of, of surgical gloves, given the, the local resource of rubber that's there. And for a long time, there's been some, it's particularly towards the end of last year, um, there were some concerns regarding some of the larger companies there that they continue were, were violating human rights um, to the point where the second largest producer was actually blacklisted by, by US customs over those rights. But actually now, given the necessity of the emergency and the crisis that we're in, we, we've seen a reverse from those who, who've been longstanding trying to campaign for, for better rights. So for example, we've seen the EU even go ahead and suggest that they should consider 24-7 production um, in those areas, which again is something given that they were being criticised for a long time for history of forced labour and other human rights violations, just kind of shows the severity of, of the need that actually that those objectives have changed. And, and again, with the, with the surge in, in demand, the US has again removed the blacklisting, thereby kind of allowing more supplies into the country. I think these are very difficult questions to, to consider, and there are no easy answers, particularly with the competing interests. And I think one thing that we would probably focus our attention on right now is, is very much firstly acknowledging that these costs are being taken. And I think that is all towards serving, actually answering the question of, well, what does a return to normality actually look like here? Are there things that we are accepting uh, temporarily? You know, a lot of people are using the sort of terminology that we are currently at war. And I think a big part of that is because sacrifice is being asked of everyone as we try to fight this thing. But at the same time, what sacrifices go too far? And more importantly, at what point do we reprioritize? We can make sure that that currently what's being accepted is not the new normal. And I think that is a big part of, of the conversations that we're having. I think more generally we're seeing companies actually having big consequences on their supply chain, uh, particularly as as companies are looking to conserve cash right now. They're effectively pulling up the drawbridge. We've seen a real variety of practices, some good, some bad. For example, we've seen some companies go ahead and cancel orders and actually withhold paying for outstanding orders, which has caused real problems for suppliers often in, in developing countries who have to pick up the pieces. And often that is then in turn reflected on the local workers. At the same time, we have seen companies Companies honouring their commitments and actually looking to be sure that they are wrapping these things up in a, in, a, in, a, in a responsible way. And I guess the big picture here is that we have significant disruption now, but at some point these companies do need to hit the restart button on their supply chains. And supply chains are, are complicated. They're not just pick up and play. And a lot of what we're encouraging in terms of enforcing uh, or looking to encourage sustainability is, okay, how sustainable is your short-term decision on the long-term viability of your supply chain? And so I think we would bring a lot of it back to that too, which, which is to say, it's, it's people will need to think beyond the current crisis. There needs to make sure that we're not crossing lines whereby you cannot return. And actually we can make sure that the recovery is as fast as possible. Question for Jonathan and and Manju, what final thoughts do you have on the future of sustainable finance in a post-COVID world? What do you expect is going to change and and what do you think may stay the same? 
From my perspective, I think uh, there is a role to be played, as we talked about earlier, for all types of sustainable finance products. Uh, even green bonds definitely have a role to play in facing the pandemic. So be it, uh, you know, the um, uninterrupted supply of electricity that is required for running uh, medical facilities or uh, ventilators. I hope to see that there will be a broader acceptance of social bonds in the coming months and that uh, there is an um, abundance of those in the market, uh, in the financial markets, uh, because uh, I think they are, the time has come for it to take its uh, rightful place in the toolkit for issuers, be it sovereigns, supranationals or corporations. And so it is not the, not the time to shy away from really taking a look and seeing there is a potential for any issuer to now come forward and think about be it social, green or sustainability bonds out there. And the other quick thing I would add is that by tapping into the sustainable finance market, uh, we continue to also impact the various sustainable development goals. And so, which is really critical in this time of the crisis, because when you help alleviate a particular social challenge or work towards reducing the impact of the pandemic, you are most likely going to help some of the other uh, sustainable development goals. So I would imagine that this particular year that we will see a good number of uh, sustainable bond issuances come to market, and as well as, you know, start the work for further uh, innovation on other products, because that will take time. And, uh, you know, I suspect that's not something that we can uh, expect to see come to market in, in, the, in the next few months. So that, that would take longer time period. But, uh, you know, we all need to think through it and build a collective resilience. And this will also mean that we all have to collaborate selflessly, no matter which part of the world or which in the part of the industry we are working in. So I would just add, I do think the word resilience is something we're going to keep on hearing more of in the future whether it be you know, in the way that we've been talking about climate resilience and green use of proceeds in the past, I think people will begin to ask the question around social resilience and how companies are investing in the infrastructure and the support they need to protect their workers, to navigate challenges like the ones we're experiencing. I think it's something that will give people a new light on what companies can be doing and the kinds of investments they can be making. And I suspect that also a lot of the innovation that companies have had in this difficult time will help them see that they are able to bring them their capabilities to new areas. And that can be a really a sustainable finance opportunity for them to address emergent needs that society faces and that they'll see that connection between the act of commerce and creating positive change and that there can be a tighter alignment of those goals. I think your dog full-heartedly agreed with that point, uh, Jonathan. <laughs> it's, it's all part. It's all part of. No problem. That's all part of us all working from home. David, I'm just going to turn to you for one last thought about the investor view of things and how do you think investor preferences and demands on sustainable finance or demand for sustainable finance products will change, if at all, as the world emerges from the COVID nineteen crisis. Yeah, I mean, one thing I think is is really being demonstrated right now, as we're all kind of focusing more on how businesses respond to COVID-19, 
is is firstly there there are a variety of responses. I think there are those companies who are doing this well. There are also those who who uh, where where they may not be handling it quite so well. And I think, as alluded to at the beginning about that point about people have long memories, is people will are taking notice and understanding that the response is different and do us getting a greater appreciation in a practical example of how sustainability is relevant to business. I think on top of that right now, we're also seeing a really, really good demonstration of just the unique role of business within society to actually be a great way of innovation and a great way of delivering solutions to society. And I think, you know, my hope is that that by having that demonstrated through this current crisis, that will will increase the appetite for people to want to be investing in those businesses and to become more aware that actually business itself has real potential there to be really beneficial in the world in which which we live. And they can have an opportunity to help fund that and actually be involved with it. Well, thank you, everyone, for participating today. I'll draw the discussion to a close with that. And thank you to our audience for tuning into our podcast. We hope that you and your families stay safe, healthy, and positive in these difficult times. It's been said a lot of times before, but it's worth emphasizing that we're all in this together. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.